Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Who do I have with me today? <gasps> Susanna Greer, good friend old, of Joe Cotter. Good old Susanna Greer. How's it going? Well, pretty well. How are you? I'm okay. Now, we spoke. I should say you spoke. You did the talking, and you spoke with our friend, our colleague, uh, Dr. Mark Fleury. He's, um, well... He used to be a basic scientist. I didn't know that. He said he was a chemical engineer back in the day who mm -hmm. studied lymphatic metastasis of cancer cells. But now we didn't want to talk to him about engineering. We wanted to mm -hmm. talk about cancer advocacy. He's a policy principal at ACS CAN, our sister organization, the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network. They're the nation's leading cancer advocacy organization. And I guess, Susanna, their goal is it's really to ensure that elected officials make ending suffering and death from cancer a top priority. So I got two questions for you, Susanna. One, I want to ask you about, you know, what we spoke with Mark about, which is clinical trials. Man, we talked a lot about clinical trials. But before that, advocacy, can cancer advocacy. You've done a bit of that even before you joined ACS when you were um, a cancer researcher in academia. You did some cancer advocacy. So why did you do it? That's a great question. So I think when I think about advocacy, to me, it's, well, the importance of advocacy is an experiment that I would never want to do, right? It would have to be comparing a situation where we were advocating for a cause to one where we didn't. So what happened in the void? What happened in the absence of advocacy? So we, we can't do that experiment. So to me, I think it is the responsibility of everyone who is involved in the cancer space, be it a clinician or a researcher or a survivor or a member of an organization like the American Cancer Society or ACS, anybody who cares about cancer and its outcomes to elevate cancer so that, as you said, our legislative bodies keep cancer top of mind. So the, the way I think about advocacy is that if we all walk to the edge of a cliff and our issue that we're advocating for, so in this case, it's cancer awareness and, and moving the needle on cancer. If we are going to take that issue and we're going to hold that as a pebble in our hand and toss it over the side into this deep ravine, right? Our pebble makes no difference. But if there is a line of millions and millions of people behind me and we all toss our pebbles, eventually they'll grow into this really huge, awesome pile and we can see the impact of that effort. And to me, that's what advocacy is all about. And I, I've always known that I needed to be a part of that pile. So part two, <laughs> clinical trials, cancer research clinical trials. Uh, ACS CAN is, well, you're going to hear all about what they're doing in this space. But, you know, you're a scientific director here at ACS, and um, a big part of your portfolio is work in this space. So what's so cool about clinical trials? So we wanted Mark to talk to us about an issue where we could illustrate the importance of advocacy in cancer. And clinical trials are a great space. Clinical trials are kind of where the rubber hits the road for cancer patients. And at the American Cancer Society, the road starts way back at this ideation, right? A, a scientist submits an idea in the form of a grant application. And if approved by 
uh, or reviewers, our external reviewers, that becomes a, a grant that we fund. And that might be really very developmental science. So it could be research that's done in test tubes that then, if the idea proves to be correct and have merit, might move into cell lines. And then if that experiment works out, might move into animals like mice. And then at some point, we need to move those ideas into humans. And those those tests, those experiments are clinical trials. And every advance, every drug, every technique, every device that we have that helps cancer patients has moved through that clinical trial process. And and we need to make that process more available to more people. And so I'm so excited for Mark to tell you about the work that ACS Can is doing in that space. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. We are so excited to share with our listeners so much about cancer advocacy. So why we advocate for cancer patients and survivors and cancer policies. So if it's okay with you, we'll, we're, we're just going to dive right in. Sounds great. All right. So I, I'd like to just level set with our listeners and help them to understand what is the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. And in the podcast, we'll call it ACS CAN. And maybe tell us a little bit about the relationship between the American Cancer Society and ACS CAN. Sure, happy to. That is uh, a frequent question, and uh, often people, when I tell them I work for ACS, can um, conflate it with ACS. And um, we are sister organizations, and I like to say that we're still joined at the hip. Uh, we share the common goal of ending death and suffering from cancer. Uh, really, the only difference between us uh, is in the methods that we employ. ACS as an organization um, funds and conducts uh, research and does a lot of direct patient services like a 24-7 hotline or provides rides or information or lodging. ACS can, on the other hand, uh, works to help patients by changing the public policy landscape. And by public policy, here we mean uh, laws, legislation, or, or regulations. Um, we try and change those in ways that help cancer patients access care, prevent people from getting cancer, or in the case of my portfolio, um, try to make sure that the environment is conducive to getting new research advances translated into drugs and treatments that can help uh, patients uh, live better and longer lives. All right, Mark, that is so interesting. So I, I love that analogy that we're, we're a little bit conjoined twins, definitely joined at the hip, ACS and ACS CANR, but really have different, you describe them as different methods we use to accomplish our goals. So let's talk a little bit about what you described as an ACS CAN goal of changing the public policy landscape, and you listed three objectives that ACS CAN has. So to increase care, to decrease cancer incidence and the suffering from cancer, and then a specialty of yours, what I guess kind of where you put a lot of your effort, maybe you could share an example. Is there a piece of cancer-related legislation where ACS CAN was involved that you're really proud of? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
And one of the things I like to explain to folks when it comes to public policy and advocacy for those policies is that uh, you have to be relatively patient. Um, laws and regulations um, don't necessarily change that often. So sometimes we may uh, have a piece of legislation that we work on and it sometimes is a, a five-year process to, to get it from introduction to approval and other times we can do it more quickly. So anytime we can get a win, it's worth celebrating. And there were some this last year that I was particularly proud of because of um, the way they impacted uh, the areas that I worked on and the the work I went into, I, I um, put into uh, these pieces of legislation. And it has to do with trials. Um, when patients uh, enroll in a clinical trial, typically whoever is sponsoring that research, whether it be the NCI or ACS or a pharmaceutical company, pays for all parts of that treatment that are not normal. So the experimental drug, any extra data collection, things like that. Uh, and insurance uh, typically pays for the care that you would get anyway. Uh, so we call that standard of care. Now, as it turns out, uh, in the United States, almost all people have insurance that requires insurers to pay for that standard of care. But unfortunately, Medicaid recipients in many states uh, still don't have that protection. And so if essentially they're barred from enrolling in cancer clinical trials. Um, ACS can develop some model legislation over the past year, and our state colleagues have uh, worked to get that introduced. And we actually got legislation passed in three states, Colorado, Minnesota, and Illinois, which would require their state Medicaid plans to cover those routine care costs of cancer clinical trials. And uh, effectively by doing that, they have now allowed uh, a new population of patients who previously couldn't enroll in cancer clinical trials. So pretty exciting that um, our work has uh, enabled folks to take part in research that wouldn't have otherwise. Oh, that's, congratulations. That's really fantastic. And yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate you breaking down kind of the expense side of clinical trials and who covers what, because that's something we don't all think about every day. But you're exactly right. If if I were to enroll in a clinical trial, the organization who is paying for the trial, be it a pharmaceutical company or a sponsor like the American Cancer Society, or you mentioned the NCI, so the National Cancer Institute, part of the Inst National Institutes of Health, organization would pay for whatever the super cool thing that we're trying out in the trial was. So the treatment or the drug or the visits, while the other parts of my care would be covered by my insurance. Um, and that might be, you know, if I were continuing chemotherapy, but at the same time going to try out a new drug in this trial. So is that, does that fairly well describe the situation if you're insured? That's that's correct. Um, as you note, uh, typically when we try some new intervention, it's typically just layered on top of uh, existing interventions that are already in common use. So um, it's just really sort of untenable for a trial sponsor to 
basically pay for every bit of a patient's care from um, you know front to back when they're only changing a very small part of that care. And then what you were so excited about and what is really awesome is that you were able to introduce legislation that was passed in three states, which is fantastic, that is going to increase access to these really new groundbreaking treatments and clinical trials for individuals in these states who are on Medicaid, that now Medicaid will cover the the insurer part. So that's, that's fantastic. Um I'd like to jump from that and talk about another population who sees barriers in entry to clinical trials, and and that's another area that you've been really influential at ACSCAN, and that is actually enrolling patients in clinical trials. So before we talk about barriers to entry in clinical trials, and I think you've just described one, like insurance, right? Can you talk maybe just a a bit. Can we backtrack a little bit and talk about why are clinical trials so important, especially to cancer patients? Sure, that's a great question. What I want to stress is that any scientific discovery has to be tested in very controlled environments, and those controlled environments are what we call clinical trials, where a small number of patients uh, will be treated and, and have data collected. Um, so every single advance that we've made uh, in the last hundred years in treating cancer has had to go through a clinical trial at one point or another. So one importance is really to the field as a whole, to future patients. So patients who enroll in a clinical trial today are moving our knowledge forward for the cancer patients that come after them. But for many cancer patients, the trial itself is also quite beneficial. Now, not every clinical trial will be a home run. As I mentioned, some, some things that we think will work won't. But for many cancer patients who don't have any other options that they find appealing, a clinical trial can offer uh, another choice. And in some cases, obviously, all these new drugs that have come out were at one time in a clinical trial. And so those folks who volunteered got got first access to those drugs. Okay, so I, I really appreciate the way you laid it out that there are two layers to participating in a clinical trial from I think the, the cancer patient perspective. And the first is paying it forward, right? I mean, there, there is no one better to understand the challenges of being a cancer patient and the hope that is aligned with that diagnosis other than the patient themselves. And so one aspect of participating in a trial is simply altruism, right? I, I want to participate so that we can, as you so nicely described, move this, this discovery from bench to bedside, as we say. So from that ideation, that scientific idea, to potentially a new therapeutic that will help potentially the participant, but certainly individuals down the road who are suffering from this disease. So that's aspect number one. And then aspect number two is that it may also help the participant. I mean, it it, it is an experiment, um, but sometimes experiments have amazing results. And so one possibility is that it will change the course of the disease in that participant. So what we would like to do as I'm thinking about this is to make sure that clinical trials are available to everyone who would like to participate. And from what I've read in preparing to talk to you, I know that there are 
are certainly barriers to participation. And that, as you said, most trials start off with a small number of people, but we do need people to participate. Uh, one of the things that I read was that about 20% of trials fail because not enough people sign up. So maybe help me understand two things. The first would be why, why does we fall short in enrollment? Why might we not be able to find enough people? And then what are some of the types of barriers that you think are impacting enrollment in clinical trials? Sure. So, you know, the first question of why are we falling short? Um, I think when we look at patient uh, perspectives on clinical trials, patients self-report overwhelmingly that they would be interested and willing in, in being part of clinical trials. So, um, and clinical trials at the same time are failing because not enough patients are enrolling. And so you would ask yourself, how can these two things exist? And it's, as you pointed out, because there are barriers uh, for those willing patients to get on clinical trials. And there's not sort of a short, succinct answer to that. Um, in fact, uh, I convened a group of a couple of dozen experts in the field, and we spent about a year doing a deep dive uh, into all the research that had been done and compiled a landscape report that really uh, tried to paint a picture of what all those myriad barriers uh, are. But I think the second uh, part of your question is sort of what are some of the key you know, barriers or types of barriers. And I think thinking of them in uh, sort of categories or types, a good way to do that. And there's, um, I like to break it into two major categories. And there are those barriers that a patient really has no control over, or maybe wouldn't even know exist. Um, we call these typically structural or clinical barriers. And then there are the category of barriers that a patient personally feels uh, and may impact their decision. And so maybe to unpack those two, uh, I can give you some examples uh, of, of barriers in the, in the structural or, or clinical space. And these are things like whether or not a trial even exists for a patient's type of cancer. Um, you know, there's no sort of master planning that that says we must have, you know, some researcher out there some, somewhere must create a clinical trial for your specific cancer type. And so many, um, especially rare cancer types, there may not even be a clinical trial anywhere for that type. Um, secondly, most clinical trials are operated in multiple locations, but they aren't operated everywhere. Uh, so if you happen to be seen at a site where uh, a trial for which you might be eligible for isn't being offered, you may never know about that or may not have access to it. Um, which brings me sort of to the next structural is that patients by and large, you know, aren't aware of what sort of the whole catalog of clinical trials available are, nor should they be, you know, they're um, often newly diagnosed and learning, you know, incredible amounts every day. Uh, but as they walk into that provider's office for the first time, we typically expect, uh, you know, the system, the provider or the hospital to screen them uh, for trial eligibility. And oftentimes uh, it's just not done. And so the patient might not even be aware, even if there is a clinical trial uh, open for them at their location. And, so, and you list all of these under things that 
a patient would not have control over. So, right. or even they, know about, you know, they right. wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily even know. So maybe we'll talk about the other, you said there are two major categories and the other you categorized as things that might personally impact the patient or impact the way they feel. So tell us a little bit more about that list. Sure. So um, interestingly, you know, these are the ones um, that people most often jump to when they think about why clinical trial enrollment is low. They they tend to think, oh, well, the patients must be saying no, and that's typically not the case. But some of those uh, patient-level uh, reasons um, are, as we talked about before, perhaps your insurance doesn't cover it. Now, fortunately, We've been successful in the public policy domain of getting almost all insurance plans to cover uh, clinical trial participation with the exception of some Medicaid plans. Um, but another reason is perhaps the requirements to be in that clinical trial are too burdensome. Um, you know, you have to come in so often for extra blood draws or tests, not to mention if you have to come in a lot extra based on, on um, you know, the clinical trial, you know, you may be losing income or having to pay for parking or childcare. And so those sort of personal pain points of cost or logistics are very real. Um, and then we also know that some patients just aren't comfortable with research or they're concerned about side effects. Uh, some like to be able to, um, you know, pick their treatments. Um, and so, they don't like the idea of sort of seeding control to uh, randomization. Um, so, so those are some of the reasons. But one of the things I, I would say is that, um, uh, just to be clear, uh, the majority of patients, when when actually offered a trial, will say yes. So it's really the minority that that say no. Interesting. I unfortunately we don't have time to really dive into what you and dozens of experts took a year to write this landscape report but i think you've you've set up for us really nicely what the barriers are and i imagine you guys you you didn't just stop there you didn't just say and throw up your hands and walk away i imagine the report also included recommendations so Perhaps you could talk to us about what recommendations fell out of the report. And since a lot of the barriers that you described were focused on patients, maybe well, let's start with patients. What do you see as the biggest takeaway for patients in thinking about these barriers and how they might enable their own participation or have those discussions with their providers or with their insurers? I think when when I think about what we learned uh, that applies to patients, I would maybe turn that question a little bit. And I think what we were focused on is what uh, what affects patients versus what the patients can do. Because again, we sort sure. of took this from a pub public policy standpoint. Sure. Um, and so if you kind of take it back, I think it points to um, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll use the example of um, a, a reason that patients might say no is that they have to come in um, more often and it's just logistically hard. Uh, so actually, even though that's a patient level pinch point, it points back to the clinical trial designers to say, when you're designing a clinical trial, as a researcher, you want all the data you can, but you have to realize 
in collecting that data, that often requires a patient to come in for another scan or an MRI or something like that. And while that data is great and helps you understand what's going on a lot better, it makes it really difficult for a patient to say yes to because, you know, they have other lives that they have to attend to. And so I think, um, you know, I, I, I want to emphasize that the, many of those patient barriers aren't under the control necessarily of the patient to change. Right. They're, felt, they're felt by the patient, but they're not under the control of the patient to change. So it really has to um, inform some of the other stakeholders in this process to, to think hard about how they, you know, they take care of their part of the process. So then maybe what are some of the other takeaways when we think about trial design, not only around access and just, is this something that's reasonable to ask? Are there, were there other things that came away from this report that were maybe surprising to you that are barriers that would be a reasonable ask for changes to be made in the design of a clinical trial? Yeah, so one of the things that we have recommended is that you involve patients uh, when you're designing a clinical trial. And I mean, uh, it, it seems obvious, but sure. um, <laughs> for yeah. better or for worse, uh, many times clinical trials are sort of designed in a vacuum, as I mentioned, sort of they're designed to optimize data collection and mm. not they're not always taking a, a patient-centric view. So I think almost any clinical trial can uh, benefit from participation in that design team by somebody with that condition who can sort of raise their hand and say, hey, do you really need that extra visit, that extra scan? But, but beyond just sort of the logistics, it's also to make sure that the question that's being asked uh, is one of interest to the patient. So um, sometimes, you know, of, of the... 45% of patients who say no to a clinical trial, sometimes they look at what's being studied in that clinical trial and just say, you know, I, that doesn't really excite me or, I, you know, that's not worth my time to come in extra to answer that question because I don't think it's an important question. So um, I think that's another piece that we need to, uh, to look at. Sure. And I love that you elevated that the expectation on the side of the patient is enormous. I mean, individuals who have a are, are facing a myriad of decisions with a challenging disease, information overload. On top of all of that, the expectation that they familiarize themselves with trials, the availability, and whether or not they qualify, it, it's a lot. So... I guess anything that can be done to reduce that burden and barrier for patients is a win. So I'd, I'd really like to kind of zero in on maybe one way that ACS scan is helping to really act on these recommendations. And I've read about your, uh, I've read about clinical trial matching services. So maybe just, could you describe them and how do, how does ACS scan think that they could be improved? Sure. So a matching service uh, for clinical trials is, I guess, not unlike a dating app, if you will, where uh, two parties who are both uh, looking for something uh, try to see if they're they're compatible. And in this case, um, rather than two people, uh, you know, looking to match up on a on a dating app, you have clinical trials that need patients which have certain characteristics. Right? It has to be the patient has to have the right cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, sometimes it has to be the right subtype or they have to have a certain biomarker or they can't have had certain treatments. So there's sort of a, a list of needs from the clinical trial site. 
And then you have the patient who is looking for a clinical trial, you know, who is who's opening matches their profile. And as just a little bit of background, the way this typically happens today is that large academic sites who may run hundreds, if not thousands of clinical trials often have some sort of system in place as patients, uh, you know, uh, are, are processed um, through their system. It can be automated uh, using electronic health records and computers to sort of automatically do it, or actually is more often the case, it's it's fairly manual that a um, nurse, um, you know, like the day before, will look through all the next day's cases and see if any of the patients match open clinical trials. But they tend to do it only for that particular site. So, you know, if you're, I'll just, you know, pick somebody at random, MD Anderson, if you're screening your patients uh, who go to MD Anderson, they're typically only screening for trials that are open at MD Anderson. And so smaller sites that don't conduct clinical research tend to not uh, screen their patients for clinical trials because they don't offer any. Um, and and so it's a because it is an onerous uh, and resource intensive process, you wouldn't sort of do that unless you had a reason. So patients who aren't matched to a clinical trial by their site, either because, you know, offers clinical trials but doesn't happen to have one for them or the patient is going to a site that it doesn't offer clinical trials at all they typically have to look for these trials on their own and that's um, you know again going back to the earlier comment is it sort of requires you to really understand the landscape and the all the details of clinical research and so that that, that becomes much harder if you're um, if it's not done by your institution. So what we realized is that there needs to be an easier way uh, for patients who aren't matched to clinical trials by their institution to, to still have uh, a screen done against them. And basically what that requires is um, that an individual facility not have to buy you know, some expensive software or hire an extra person to do that. So what if we could just build it into your electronic health record? as a single button push because the health record has in theory all of your clinical characteristics what cancer type you have how old you are what medications you've received which are the things that a trial matching service needs to to know so what if you could just um, automatically with one button export that out of the electronic health record to a matching service and have the answers come back with just a one-click easy uh, way to do it and surprisingly, nobody's ever uh, done that, again, because um, there just hasn't been the business model to do that. So we're working with partners in the field to create sort of a freeware version of this that if successful, um, any patient through their patient portal or any site uh, through their provider workflow could use their electronic health record, push a single button and get a list of trials that the patient uh, could potentially be eligible for. So it, it really tries to democratize the process of clinical trial matching such that uh, someone at a small um, you know, rural uh, health center would have just as good a chance of getting matched to a clinical trial as if you're going to a large urban you know, academic medical center. Ah, I really love that. That's, ugh. I just, I was struck by this image of the game that we all played when we were kids, like musical chairs. And I could just see all these cancer patients walking around these chairs and everybody's sitting down. And those that sat down happened to be at sites where trials were offered. 
and they were selected. And then you've got the person left standing and that's just not fair. So I'm really hopeful and excited that ACS can and your partners can really push this forward. And as you said, democratize this system because no one should be left standing alone without access to clinical trials. Yeah, well said. It's a great, great image. So we've talked about barriers. And I before I let you go, I really want to area that's critically important in clinical trial enrollment, and that is disparities. So first, can you can you help us to understand what disparities look like in terms of clinical trial enrollment? And maybe, I mean, the obvious question is, so if if disparities exist in enrolling for clinical trials, what is the impact of having a less diverse population enrolled in a trial outcome? Yeah, and I, I tell you what, this uh, this is a great question. And you asked, you know, before sort of what some of the key learnings or surprises were from, you know, spending that year studying the literature. I will have to tell you that uh, understanding disparities in clinical trial participation is an area where I, I thought I sort of understood it when I started this process. And I, mm-hmm. after, you know, looking at it, I realized how way more complex uh, and multi-layered it was. So I I think, um, you know, to maybe back up uh, just a little bit, um, it turns out that if we ask the question, do clinical trials, the the participants in a clinical trial generally look like the population um, that has that type of cancer? And, And the answer is actually, not a clear yes or no. I will divide it into two areas. Um, there's a broad category of clinical research that's funded by the government, by the National Cancer Institute. And this tends to be more sort of um, comparing different types of already accepted treatments or slight variations and things like that. That research happens predominantly at U.S. cancer centers that are that are funded by the NCI. Uh, There was a a report out earlier this summer looking at racial and ethnic um, makeup of the clinical trials sponsored by the NCI. And it was really impressive over the last 20 years. They've made incredible, incredible progress. And they're really within, you know, like a percent or two of mirroring um, the population in the United States with cancer. So that's that's the good news um, that they do pretty well. Now, there's a, another broad category of clinical research that is really sort of the, the privately funded, uh, industry funded, you know, trying to develop new drugs uh, and devices to treat cancer. And when you look at the make, you know, racial and ethnic makeup of those clinical trials, they look nothing at all like the U.S. cancer population. Um, and so, you know, that's not good news, um, but one of the things that I don't think I appreciated before I uh, went down this path of studying this issue is um, if you're a large pharmaceutical company, you're not trying to get your drug just approved in the United States. You're trying to get it approved in Europe, in Japan, in China, in Australia. And so when they conduct clinical trials, they tend to conduct them uh, throughout the entire uh, globe. and. Uh, to submit data to the Food and Drug Administration to get your drug approved in the United States, there is no requirement 
that those clinical trials have to be run in the United States. Um, mm. The requirement is that they have to be, you know, the findings have to be relevant to a U.S. population, which is sort of a, a broad statement. Um, and if you look, there have been some reports that that sort of looked over the past decade at drugs submitted to the U.S. FDA for approval. Where did those participants come from? And approximately two out of every three cancer patients came from somewhere other than the United States. Oh, wow. Um, and so if you go back to the question originally is, do clinical trials, you know, mirror the population of the United States? Well, in this case, no, they don't, but it would be really hard for them to mirror the population mm. of the United States when two out of three patients aren't from the United States. And so, um, you know, so we can debate whether, you know, <clears throat> trials should be in the U.S. or not, but I mean, the reality is, is, is they aren't, and that allows uh, drugs to, to reach the market much faster than if every single trial had to be run in the United States and every trial for European approval had to be run in, the, you know, Europe, uh, it would take a lot longer. So I think there's some advantages to this, but the disadvantages are that you approved a drug in a population, sort of a model population who is in a clinical trial, and the real population that gets that drug doesn't look the same in terms of, you know, lifestyle, diet, genetic makeup, uh, race, ancestry, uh, ethnicity, et cetera. And so, um, you know, the downside of that is that once it's on the market, it may turn out that it works differently than expected overall. Right. And it may work differently um, for some subgroups uh, than, than others for a variety of reasons. And so, um, I think that's a really challenging question for us. So how how can we understand that better before it hits the market rather than um, to have to learn all of this uh, later? It's a significant downside. And I, I'm wondering if ACS can has thought or in your discussions over the past year, were there considerations of how we could ensure that privately run cancer trials have a more diverse patient population or a, a patient population rather that mirrors the population of the cancers for which the trials are designed. Right. So, you know, I think um, within the sort of range of things that we can do, um, we know that um, there are, for example, great age disparities in clinical trial enrollment, which is somewhat surprising. Um, cancer is generally a disease that becomes more prominent the older you get. Um, but if we look at patients over 70, year old, 70 years old, uh, their representation on clinical trials, there's only about as half as many patients over 70 on clinical trials as we would expect if we were to try and mirror the population. Well, a lot of the reason for that, it turns out there's there's multiple reasons, but the way those trials are designed and the eligibility criteria will sometimes either, you know, deliberately with an age restriction or um, not deliberately, but has the same effect, will exclude older patients based on other criteria like their mobility or things like that. Um, so we have... Uh, worked with and encouraged uh, the FDA to um, change some of the default eligibility criteria that go along with clinical trials to make sure that older adults aren't kept off of clinical trials. And again, that's a way of making sure um, that the population receiving the drug and the population in the clinical trial uh, look similar. 
But there's also a lot of issues of um, we believe that the clinical trial matching uh, project that I described earlier uh, is if you can democratize who has access to clinical trials and make sure everyone sort of has a more equal chance of participating, um, then you will hopefully get a broader cross-section uh, of the United States to enroll in clinical trial, and not just those who are located around urban academic centers. So, so we've got uh, you know, a handful of ways that we've been working on. Um, one important thing that we have uh, done is we have in introduced legislation uh, named after Henrietta Lacks, which many folks uh, probably know a little bit about. Her cells were taken, her cancer cells were taken from her without her permission. Um, and turned out to be an, an incredible tool in research and drug development that have been used for decades. Um, but it's sort of an example of how research has not always um, followed good sound ethical principles and then at one time sort of took advantage of underserved populations. Um, now we, we realize um, you know, some of these same populations who want to enroll in clinical trials can't. We've introduced legislation that has asked the federal government to do a comprehensive review of all of their policies to understand how they might uh, positively or negatively uh, affect the participation uh, by underserved minorities in cancer clinical trials. So it's a, it's a piece of legislation we're pretty hopeful we'll get passed this year. Um, and again, another way that ACS can, uh, example of a way we, we, we do some of our work. Mark, this has been just so illustrative to me and I think to our listeners just to understand that what I'm seeing is your encouragement of a change in focus where previously, I guess unfortunately currently in many cases, clinical trials are designed with an outcome in mind. And while that is necessary and beneficial, it seems that if I had to summarize just in one word your recommendation, and that is to make them more patient-centric and just to be more thoughtful about the process where you are um, asking and reviewing and really enabling. So thank you for your work. It's, it's so critically important, and we'll have to have you on next year to check on the outcomes of all of this really important legislation. Well, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this. This is really a passion of mine and uh, certainly uh, always always love to talk about it when invited. And so would, would love to, to come back in a year and give you the update with hopefully some, uh, some good news and progress. Thank you, Mark. We're really grateful for all that you and your colleagues do at ACS CAN. I, I can't imagine a better group of colleagues to be joined at the hip with. So um, Likewise. best of luck and um, we'll be hopeful for some fantastic outcomes. Thank very you soon. so much. Thank All you. right. Take care, Mark. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.